First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, here at Integrity, we take books of the Bible, we go through them verse by verse, and so this is where we're at. We're in a series called uh, Exiles, we're looking at First Peter. And I'll, I'll be honest with you this morning, this passage at first glance is incredibly odd. Uh, I would never have picked this passage to preach at any point, especially on Mother's Day. But because we go verse by verse through Scripture, we plan out our stuff way in advance. Um, we are, this is where we're at. So God has a reason for this text. I will promise you this. Uh, as we go through this passage, uh, there's some beautiful, insightful, encouraging, uh, rich truths that we're going to see in here if we're able to understand it. Uh, at first glance, you'll read it and you'll wonder, what in the world is Peter talking about? Uh, later on in, in, in Second Peter, uh, Peter almost makes a joke in Second Peter that he has trouble understanding some of the Apostle Paul's writing. And I find that interesting because I think if Apostle Paul were to read what Peter says in First Peter chapter 3, he would probably tell him just to stick to being a fisherman and to give up on his writing career because it is that difficult to understand. So what I'll do this morning is I'll read this passage so you can see uh, what we're up against, and then hopefully we'll glean from the practical truths that are in it. So we'll start in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So that's not hard, but this is where it gets... Interesting. Verse 19. In which he, Christ, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21. Baptism, by the way, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of, the God, of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subject to him. Happy Mother's Day. What in the world is Peter saying here? Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther, if you know church history, he says, this is a wonderful text and a more obscure passage than anywhere in the New Testament. And he says, therefore, I do not know with certainty what Peter is talking about at all. That's Martin Luther, all right? He writes a lot of books. Let's just say it that way. And he doesn't understand what this passage means. So you think 39-year-old Ben Tugwell is going to lay some knowledge on you this morning. I'm going to do the very best I can, all right? Biblical scholar Millard Erickson, who wrote an excellent commentary on uh, this really a systematic theology book, and he says that there are, in his research, a 180, 180 different interpretations on this passage alone. So here at Integrity, we believe that all Scripture is given by the authority of the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is inspired by God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for helping you grow in your faith, to help you know and love Jesus more. We believe that 
add integrity. And we believe that all scripture is equally inspired by God. However, we don't believe that all scripture is equally clear. And this is one of those places that is not clear. With that being said, I want to ensure you that the main points and application of this text, I believe, are clear. And some of the nuances, although they are, we're unsure of what he means, I believe that if we leave with at least the main points, I will count it as a win. I'll check it off as a W on Mother's Day, all right? So that's my goal this morning. So we'll start in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the easiest one in this section to understand. So I'm going to spend most of my time there. No, I'm just kidding. Now, in order to understand the flow of what, what he's saying, we have to know what he says before. So let's look at the verse before. He says in verse 17, he says, For it is better for, to, to suffer for doing good that if, if it should be God's will than for doing evil. So the context is about how we respond when someone is nasty to us, if someone has wronged us, if someone has hurt us. And in in this context, the believers who Peter is talking to are believers who are suffering. They're scattered throughout uh, Asia Minor, and they've gone through tremendous persecution. Some of them have died for their faith. Some of their loved ones have been beaten and persecuted. Some of their family members have turned on them for preaching the gospel. And so what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to instill in these believers, hey, be like Christ in the middle of suffering. I know when people say nasty things about you. I know when you are hurting, your tendency is going to respond through evil. And so what he says in verse 17 is, don't respond, don't give evil for evil, but return evil for good. And he says, if you suffer for doing good, you're honoring Christ. If you you suffer for doing evil, you're not honoring Christ. And so then he goes into 18. And then verse 18, I'll read it again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So that, that verse comes in that context. He goes, suffer for doing good. And by the way, look at what Jesus did. Jesus suffered for doing good. And he's not doing it as a trump card. I want you to see that this morning. This is not his trump card to say, well, look at the suffering of Jesus. Look at how painful the cross was. You think your suffering's bad? This is how painful. No, he's not doing that. And in Mother's Day, I'll just say this. You ladies have the perfect trump card for suffering. If your son or your daughter is complaining because flossing hurts, what's the ultimate trump card? Okay, They get a shot on their arm. You take them to the doctor. What's the ultimate trump card? What's the trump card that you use about pain? You think that hurts. I gave birth to you. Think about the pain I went through. Now floss your teeth, right? You have the ultimate trump card. What Peter is not doing here, he's not using the ultimate trump card. He's not saying, okay, you think your suffering's bad, Look at the suffering Christ. Think about how bad it was for him. No, no, no. Rather, what he's doing is he's using Jesus as an example of his point in verse 17. Jesus 
died. Jesus was the righteous one, and he died for the unrighteous one. And look at how God blessed his obedience in dying for the unrighteous. Look at how Jesus suffered for doing good, but look at the benefit. What's the benefit? He says that because that Jesus has suffered for doing good, he might bring us to God. Jesus was the one who was right. We were the ones who were wrong. We are the unrighteous. Don't miss what Peter is saying here. Because it's incredibly practical when you understand it. When someone harms us, it's challenging to respond in love, correct? So I'm the only honest one here, correct? It's hard to respond in love. So what he's doing is giving them a picture of what Christ did. Notice how Christ didn't respond in hate or evil. Christ responded in love. He responded in love for being the one who was right and was righteous, but dying for the ones who were unrighteous, who were wrong. And because of that, because of his single obedience, we are saved. We are redeemed. So look at how God used the ultimate example in Christ. And notice even the clarity of Peter's statement. He says that Jesus Christ died once for sins. This is a subtle yet very important point. This is all throughout the New Testament that the writers of the New Testament are trying to show you that Jesus only had to die once to cover the sins of mankind. Romans 6, verse 10, he says, for the death, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, for the death, he, Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 9, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered how many times? Once, to bear the sins of many. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ occurred once, friends, not over and over again. And this is a main distinction between Protestants and our Catholic friends. The Roman Catholic institutions say and believe that when they take of the Lord's Supper, which is the the Eucharist, they would say that Jesus Christ physically becomes the bread. So the bread is physically Christ. You are taking the physical Christ, the body of Christ, when you take the bread. And they would say when you dip it into the wine, it's the blood or the juice if you're Baptist, right? You put it into the wine, and that's physically Jesus' blood being shared. And so what they would say is, when the Roman Catholic priests call for the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, to take place, they actually believe that you are partaking Jesus' body physically and his blood physically, and what he does is perpetually die for you every time you take the Lord's Supper. And why this is so significant in the Catholic Church is because you consistently have to have atonement for sins like the Old Covenant where the sacrifices continually have to be made. And the point of the New Testament writers is the opposite of that. No, 
Christ died once. One single offering was enough to atone for the sins of many. And so the point that Peter is making here is look at all that God can do through one simple act of obedience. If you're wondering how something good can come out of you being obedient to God and showing love even when someone harms you and you're suffering, Peter says, look at what God did through his son's obedience. He saved many. So here's the thing, believer. Because of the gospel, if any situation of suffering, we can approach it with great confidence knowing that God will always bless obedience because he did that even in his own son's life. And we should be able to look at that practically, and I'll get back to that a moment, but let's look at the part that's strange. Verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered for once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made us alive, made alive in the spirit, in which, this is where it's strange, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, what happens with this text is people will try to say, okay, after Jesus died, people will say that he went to hell and he preached to all the unrepentant people who died and went to hell. But here's the thing. The text does not say that. That's not the point of the text. It doesn't even fit the context. The point is not about what happened after Jesus died on the cross. Peter is just making a transition between what happened on the cross and then talking about then the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and even how the Spirit draws the non-believer. Did Jesus, was Jesus raised by the Holy Spirit? Of course he was. That's, that's what the point that he's making here in verse, uh, verses 18 through 20. The Holy Spirit r- resurrected Jesus from the grave. Other places, uh, for instance, Romans chapter 6, it says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, uh, John chapter 2, it says that Jesus actually raised himself from the dead. So this is a triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit rose from the dead. That's how you answer the question. So did the Holy Spirit raise himself from the dead? Yes. Did the Son raise himself from the dead? Yes. Did the Father raise himself from the dead? Yes. It's all work of the triune God. But when Peter is talking about Jesus preaching to the unrepentant, he is talking about how those that Jesus preached to in the days of Noah, and they are now in hell because they rejected The preaching of Noah. But here, it's odd because Peter makes the point that it wasn't the preaching of Noah. It was the preaching of Jesus. So this is where it gets clunky, right? So okay, Jesus wasn't there in Genesis, correct? Like if you look at Genesis, it's like, okay, I don't see Jesus preaching to these people and telling them to get on the boat. Like, if you're not familiar with the story of Noah, you probably, hopefully you are, even if you've never been to church, you've probably heard uh, the story of Noah. If not, Evan Almighty tells you something, right? You have something. So the preaching of Noah is really a story about repentance. 
It's really, okay, get on the boat, turn from the direction that you are going, and get on the boat. That's a, that's a message of repentance. Stop disobeying, obey, get on the boat, all right? And so what's happening, he's saying Noah preached this message of repentance, but he actually says Jesus preached this message of repentance. So how is it that Jesus preached this message of repentance? Well, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 Noah is called a herald of righteousness. So what does that mean? He says, but he says, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If if Noah is a herald of righteousness, what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, is that Jesus preached through Noah. It's odd. But Jesus preached through Noah. Another place that we see this happening is the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the church of Ephesus and he's talking about how Christ drew those who were far off to himself into repentance with them. He says this in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now skip down to verse 17. He says, And he, Jesus, came and preached Peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christ physically went to Ephesus. And he certainly did not physically preach to the audience that uh, Paul is talking to in Ephesus. So what is he saying? How was it that Christ preached to the people of Ephesus? Christ preached to the people of Ephesus through Paul. Paul's talking about himself when he says Christ preached to you because Paul understands that Christ throughout the Bible preaches through preachers. You even see it in earlier in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring uh, what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Here Peter says, the Spirit of Christ preached through the prophets of old before Christ came and before people received the gospel. How did people hear the message of repentance? The Spirit of Christ preached through them. And throughout the Bible, the Spirit is called, at least four times in the New Testament, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Because when the Spirit preaches, he promotes Jesus Christ. Jesus says it this way in John 16, verse 13, when Jesus is telling his disciples what the Spirit of God is going to do. He says, verse 13, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. What is the Spirit going to do? He says, he will glorify me. He's going to glorify Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to, it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does John say the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit promotes Jesus. And that's why he's called the Spirit of Christ. 
The Holy Spirit does not promote himself, but he promotes Christ. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is less than Christ. It doesn't mean the Spirit is less than the Father. They're equal, but that is his role. His role is to promote the person and work of Jesus because the person and work of Jesus is our mediator between God. That's how we have a relationship with God, by knowing Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, it means that the Spirit is at work in a person's life to bring them to Christ Jesus. And so guess what this means? When preaching happens and his Holy Spirit is moving in a person's life through the word of God, it really means that Christ is preaching to draw someone to himself. When Noah preached repentance to those who laughed at him for making a boat in the middle of the desert, it was really Christ preaching through him. In the Old Testament, when prophets and priests preached to the Israelites to repent and to trust Christ and to, or trust God and surrender their life to God, it's Christ preaching to draw them to himself. And so Christ preaches through preachers who preach God's word. And he still does that today. And it's not just limited to those people like myself who had the vocation of being a pastor. It's really toward any one of you who preached the gospel. The gospel is a message of Christ. And when we proclaim it, it's Christ preaching to the hearts of those who need to believe. This is good news for someone in my vocation, by the way. Because practically speaking, this means that the effectiveness of the gospel isn't fully reliant on the preacher. Rather, the effectiveness of the gospel is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit. That's good news. Because sometimes my sermons stink. Like sometimes when I, when I feel like I crushed it, I mean, I'm like, that one's, I crushed that one. I'm done. I'm thinking, okay, revival, people are going to come up weeping, right? That one guy I don't like, he's going to say sorry, you know, something, right? Something. And then it's like, hey, good job. Thanks. Oh. Really? Anything else? Did you like? Did you like text? You know? No, it's good. Thanks. When the times, though, this is happening all the time. Sometimes it's reverse, but sometimes when I get up here, I'm like, man, that was terrible. They should fire me, seriously. What are they doing here, right? I'm done. Somebody in the hallway, weeping. Man, that was, I can't, you know, God really spoke to me this morning. I'm like, did he really? You know, like, did that? Like, you just, did you just hear what I just, you know, that was awful. Like, what were you thinking, right? What's wrong with you, you know? How do you explain that? It's the Lord's work. Christ preaches through preachers. It's all God's word that changes a person's heart. I've shared this story with you a bunch of times, even about evangelism. I mean, when you're sharing the gospel, sometimes it doesn't even make sense. Like, I've shared the gospel before where, man, I felt like, again, I crushed it. I'm thinking, man, I shared this. Man, I quoted scripture. I sounded like a brilliant, like, theologian. I, I, I had the eloquent words are just flowing and illustrations are just flowing. And I look at the person, I'm thinking, okay, because of that awesome presentation, they are going to just give their life to Christ. And I'm like, da-da-da-da-da, what do you think? And they're like, cool. 
I'm like, really, didn't you just hear what I just said? Like, how awesome it was? Like, I had all these quotes and all these stories and everything, and you're not, you know, like, no. And other times, man, I sound like, I sound like Ricky Bobby after he wins a race. Like, I don't know what to do with my hands, right? What am I going to, like, and I'm, I'm communicating like a buffoon. But I, I get the gospel clear, and the presentation's all wrong, it's all bad, and I look up and the person's weeping, and they're ready to give their life to Christ. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense just because it's all preaching of Christ. Christ is preaching through his word. Christ is using his word and elevating his word, and it's not reliant. Listen, it's never reliant upon the preacher. It's always Christ preaching through his word. Anytime in all of history, in the history of the world, anytime someone's used the word of God and preached the word of God and someone's life was changed, it's always about Christ. It's always the finished work of Christ. And so, friends, the point that, he's, that he is making here, he says, look at, Peter is looking at this church who is suffering. He says, look, look at the days of Noah. Jesus preached that the entire world would repent which means get in the boat. But only eight, only eight people moved, got in the boat, and the rest of the world disobeyed. But who survived? Eight people. So how does it fit in the suffering? When we're suffering, what we like to do, if we're honest, is we try to give ourselves permission to disobey God. When we are suffering, when someone does us wrong, our tendency is to want to retaliate. We think, or we think it's okay to be angry at God, angry at others. Sometimes we let our minds drift into hatred, into bitterness, into selfishness, into greed, into lust, and the list goes on. And by the way, that would be the popular route to do. When someone wrongs you, the popular route, what our culture teaches us is to retaliate. If you don't believe me, get a Twitter account. Because that's what happens everywhere. Someone's, a celebrity bashes this celebrity, and this is a Twitter, and there's like 1,800 Twitter messages back and forth, and there's shots being fired back and forth. Turn on the news what you see is retaliation, and retaliation is celebrated in our culture. But what does he say? Hey, I want you, believer, to obey me even when you're suffering. Even when someone's done you wrong, I want you to not return evil for evil, but return evil for good. Look at the days of Noah. Eight people got on the boat. The rest of the world drowned. What he's saying is take the high road. Take the road that is less traveled. So when you're suffering and someone's wronged you, wronged you, you, don't have to, you, you don't get to have permission to disobey. You don't have permission to sin. And this is one of the ways that suffering can lead us to Christ. Because when we suffer, we're often at our wit's end and we suffer, we often come to the question of, Jesus, what would you have me do right now? And the answer is always, obey me and trust me. 
And so what he does is Peter takes him to the cross. He shows him what Christ did. Then he shows him the work of the Holy Spirit and the importance of obeying God's word. And then it's almost strange again, verse 21, he talks about baptism. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So to bring up baptism almost seems strange, but it isn't. Because remember, he's coming off the conversation about Noah. In Noah's day, those who refused to repent, what happened? They were overtaken by the flood. They were overtaken by water. And so what Peter's doing now is he's making a parallel between that story and Noah's life. And now he's talking about how baptism is an appeal to God. It's not, does it, he's not saying that baptism saves a person. Rather, he's saying, because he, he says it's not a removal of, of dirt from the body, but he says it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says almost the same thing. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. What Peter and Paul are saying is that baptism is our way of identifying with the risen Christ. In other words, the act of baptism isn't what saves you. It's what you're just saying, I'm identifying with the risen Christ. I'm putting my faith in the risen Christ. Baptism is your way of proclaiming that you belong to him. It's your appeal to him. Here in Integrity, if you've been to a service before, we baptize people. We typically have a giant feeding trough up here. And then we have testimony videos where we get to hear the stories about how Jesus has changed these people's lives. And what we've done a good job is is trying to make an appeal to you so that you can see who these people are, what their story is. So we, we tell them, hey, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your family members, tell your neighbors that you're sharing the gospel with to be here to hear this story. And what we've done a good job with is saying, hey, we want to make sure that people get to hear your story and you're making this appeal, this public declaration to them. But what we've often failed to do is actually challenge them too that it's not just your appeal to them, it's your appeal to God. And it's moreover, And ultimately, and more importantly, before everyone else, it's your appeal to God. It's you saying, God, I am going to be obedient to you, and this is my way of showing that I want to be a part of the new covenant in Christ. That's what it really is. It's not just about the the people that we're baptized in front of. It's about our appeal that we're making to God. I, I look at it this way. I wear this wedding ring this is one of those rubber ones, but I wear this piece of rubber on my finger as a way, first of all, to tell every other person in the world that I'm taken, that I am married to Jessica Tugwell. And I'm saying, hey, no one come near this marriage. This is who I am committed. This is my appeal to my wife saying to the world, I'm married, right? Right? 
But it's not just an appeal to everyone. It's also an appeal to her. Because I'm also letting her know, when I wear this, when I leave and go to work every single day, when I leave our home every single day, I'm letting you know, honey, that on August 7th, well, that was bad. I almost missed it. August 7th, 2004, right? That I made these sacred promises to Jessica Tugwell. And so when I wear this ring, I'm saying, this is who I belong to. I'm committed to the promises that I made to you on that day. And I'm committed to them every time I leave. And I'm wearing this ring to remember these promises. And so baptism is the same way. When we get baptized, yes, there is a public declaration that we're making to the rest of the world, but we're moreover saying it to Christ, saying, Lord, I know that you've commanded every believer to to be baptized, so this is my appeal to you of, of a good conscience that I love you and I'm committed to you and you've asked me to do this thing and I'm going to do it because I love you. And if you think about it, it's weird. Like, this is the sign of those who are in Christ. This is what he tells believers to do. Why? Why not say, get a tattoo that says Jesus on it, right? Wear a necklace, right? Wear, like, yellow socks. How do we know if you're belonging to Christ? Well, look at my socks, you know? Like, why is it something like that? Why is it that we get in water and we're back? Why is that the sign? Well, there's obviously some symbolism there of our sins being cleansed by the washing of the, God, of the Spirit in our life, cleaning us and making us a new person. Clearly, that's there. But it is strange. It's strange. Why do we do it? Because we obey. And that's why when people come up out of the water, our church, we clap and we cheer. And we're thankful because we say, man, what an awesome Act of obedience, this person's willing to stand in front of uh, friends and neighbors and even strangers and proclaim Christ. And more ultimately, they're saying to Christ, man, I love you this much that I want to obey you. And so here, it's really about a believer responding to obedience. Once again, it's all about obedience. So how in the world does this all tie in? We have the cross. We have the work of the Holy Spirit, and we have baptism. How does this play into suffering? What do these things have in common? What they have in common is this. These are identifiers of a genuine believer. And these are Peter's way of reminding this suffering church that truth prevails. In the midst of hardship and suffering, truth prevails. So if you are tempted to disobey in the middle of suffering, Peter's looking at the church and saying, hey, remember the days of Noah. They took the road that was less traveled, and they decided to obey even when it wasn't popular. And what happened? He says God saved them. And then he even uses the ultimate example. He says, if you're tempted to disobey in the middle of your suffering, look at Jesus. Jesus went to the cross and died for once for all. Look at how God takes one act of obedience and saved many who are unrighteous. Look at what God does 
when we obey, even in the midst of suffering. When we suffer and we want to retaliate, we want to justify it by saying, it's not fair, you might be right, but look at Jesus. He was righteous and died for the unrighteous. It wasn't fair. But if it was fair, we would all be in hell because he wouldn't have died for us. Friends, when we are suffering, we're not called to do what is fair. We are called to obey. And when we suffer, might our appeal to God, in the same way that being baptized is a appeal to God, we obey. And it goes against the grain of society, but we obey in the midst of suffering because we do so because we want to please the Lord. And so maybe some of you are in this room who are suffering right now. And maybe that you're angry at God in the midst of your suffering. May I remind you of the last verse that Peter says in verse 22, that Christ is one who's gone to heaven and he's at the right hand of God with the angels, the authorities, the powers, having been subject to him. Christ and God, God the Father, is seated on the throne And we are called to obey him. And we are called to know that he's sovereign even in our suffering. That he's with us even in our suffering. Which means that we don't have the permission to sin. And sometimes I think we believe that suffering makes us into a different person. We're like, okay, well, the reason why I responded this way is because I'm suffering. I'm going through a hard time and I'm suffering and I'm responding out of suffering. Listen, suffering does not make you a different person. Suffering actually just exposes who we really are. And that's the sobering truth about suffering. But God uses it in our life to expose who we really are. And it's not to give back into sin and not allow ourselves permission to sin, not allow ourselves permission to retaliate, but it's to obey, which is to love, which is to display grace, and which is to trust him. And so this morning, if you are suffering, if you are about to be suffering, if you're coming out of a season of suffering, what will your appeal to God be? Will it be to love or will it be to retaliate? Will it be to obey or will it be to disobey? God help us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful and we're humbled by your word. We're grateful.